him a lot about the second coming. Not only about the gospel, who was Jesus, but in coming weeks, we're going to see he taught him about judgment. He taught him about the man of lawlessness. Uh, last week, Scott taught um, about the rapture. And so there's, they, they knew a lot for three weeks. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the man of lawlessness would have been at the top of my list of a three-week conference on the basics of the gospel. But at some point, Paul makes it clear that he's taught them about it. I grew up in an environment that stressed, and it, it, it meant something different back then than it does now, but an environment that stressed a thing called biblical prophecy. And by that, it was talking about the end times, the second coming, what was going to happen in the end times. Uh, in 1970, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth was published by Hal Lindsey. Uh, the Late Great Planet Earth was a book that taught about biblical prophecy from a very unique perspective. Because the nation of Israel had been reestablished, some of you, uh, hang with me just for a short history lesson here, young folk. Uh, because the nation of Israel had been established, reestablished in 1948, there was suddenly by 1970 uh, this, this incredible, this is it. This is it, the nation of Israel's back, the temple, because Revelation, as far as an exact um, interpretation of the book of Revelation, a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, wasn't possible earlier than the 1950s. As a matter of fact, even when the nation of Israel was established in 1948, the city of Jerusalem was divided in two, and the temple mount was outside the purview of the nation of Israel. Then in 1967, you had the Six-Day War where uh, the nation of Israel expanded. Are you still with me? This is really interesting. It, it's so interesting. We used to have conferences on this stuff. Um, and the Six-Day War happened. The, the nation of Israel retook the Temple Mount. Now by 1970, it looked inevitable that the nation of Israel was going to rebuild the Temple and all the end-time prophecies from the book of Revelation can now come true. Hence the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which, by the way, became the best-selling nonfiction book of the 70s, a book on biblical prophecy. And it was really Was that? Uh, it was really about... I think my beard is catching things here. We'll go with that. Um, my wife's wanting me to shave anyway. Might be a good time. Um, where was I? I mean, we had conferences on Lake Great Planet Earth. Um, I mean, it was really this literal interpretation. And really, Lake Great Planet Earth uh, spawned the Left Behind series which is a literal take on the book of Revelation. And I, I will just tell you, this is not my theology. Straight up. I, I, Scott danced around some of it last week. I'll tell you straight up. But he did say I had the right version, did he not? <laughs> so um, this is not my theology. I, I have some difficulty with um, what's known as the pre-tribulation rapture as the church is going to be taken out before the tribulation. 
And some of you are like, blah, blah. He's just going blah, blah, blah now. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, the church, it, 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 this has become a big deal in the church. And here's the horrible thing about it. I, I, don't, I don't think the Left Behind series is good theology. But if you believe it, and that's what God has convicted you in your heart, I'm not going to divide fellowship with you over this. You know, because there is a lot of not knowing, right? There's a lot of not, can, can we say there's a lot of not knowing? Uh, <laughs> if you say, no, no, I know. <laughs> I know what the right thing is. And that's where we get into trouble, where we start saying, yeah, no, I've got it. Look, here's the deal. These terms get thrown around all the time. Millennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Amillennial, premillennial, pre-tribulation, rapture. I mean, it gets so complicated, I have to look it up again to even know what we're talking about. Where's my glossary of terms? And really, I understand the terms. I'm making fun. But it, it, there's so many terms that it really does get very, very complicated. I mean, there, there are interpretations of the book of Revelation that say, you know what, it already happened. Um, all, all, the stuff that's there, most of it already happened. Um, some very leading scholars believe in that um, view. Some people, um, my dad, when in the 1970s, uh, he was actually interviewing for a church in Florida. Interviewing is, sounds so technical, but he was, it wasn't the church he ended up in, but a church prior to that one had, had him come up and preach, and they, they were going to bring my dad on board as pastor and then someone at one of the meetings said I don't think this man believes in a pre-tribulation rapture and so they asked my dad do you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture do you all understand what I'm saying here for those of you not in the church there is a belief that the rapture the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation that the church won't be here to go through the tribulation. Um, that's what, like, late great planet Earth left behind. So my dad said that he did not believe in that, that he believed the church was going to be going through the tribulation, that the rapture would happen after that. And they didn't bring him on board as pastor. They refused to hire him as pastor. They didn't want to divide the church over a pre-tribulation rapturist um, being their, their pastor. So personally, I'll just tell you straight up, again, I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, which means I want to prepare you to go through the tribulation. As a pastor, I believe it's my call to prepare you to possibly go through the tribulation. And here's the good news. If I'm wrong on the way up, I'll be, hey, sorry. I made a mistake. <laughs> but much of the church has this escapist mentality that God is not going to allow us to go through bad things. Now, I think Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. I think there's a lot of teaching in the, in the Bible about us going through hard times. And again, I don't think it's worth dividing over. That's my bottom line. So I'll just give you that 
straightforward as we go on uh, in, this, in this study. Um, all of what I was trying to say was, in the 70s and 80s, there was a great deal of excitement about the nation of Israel, and really the enamorment became about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, in some ways, became the focal point of the preaching of many churches rather than the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, it became to the point where uh, some people were saying, wait a minute, who are the people of God? Is it the nation of Israel and the Jews? Or is it the church that are the people of God? Which I think is a critical point to start with. It is a critical question to answer before you get into any of your eschatology studies. Who are the people of God? Now again, show my hand. I don't mind telling you what I believe. I believe the church is the people of God. We are the people of God. We've been grafted in, according to Romans, to the promises that were given to the nation of Israel. But the enamorment on the nation of Israel, or even the Jewish people, and I'm not anti-Semitic, please. But the enamorment on how God's purpose for Israel, and I don't understand all of what God's purpose for the Jews are. I, I, I will tell you that. I don't understand. There will be a revival. There will be those coming to Christ. But to me, there is not a plan apart from Jesus. Hello? There is not a plan that God has for the salvation of the Jews or Gentiles apart from Jesus. And as a result, we are the people of God. And that will frame your whole eschatological view. Now, in... Um, 1991, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit historically. Are we still love each other. We're still good so far. Okay, in 1991, we had the Iraq War where President Bush, and then, then it was like, okay, this is it. This is Armageddon. Uh, books came out. Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis by John Walford was a very popular book at this time. And here's what one of the summaries says about it. It says, never before in history has there been such a chain of events signaling the approach of Armageddon war, it, uh, Armageddon, war in the Middle East, nuclear technology in the hands of rogue states, uh, instability in oil markets. Sounds like it was written for today, right? Terrorist attacks on the U.S. soil, and this is before major terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, Threats to wipe Israel off the map and alliances between Russia and Middle Eastern nations. These troubling world events confirm the forecast made by Dr. John F. Walford, widely recognized as the father of modern biblical prophecy. So in 1991, this book was very popular. Now, the book was actually written in the 70s as well, in the height of the late great planet Earth wave. But some years later, it was uh, released. The, the, it goes on and says, his predictions once seemed beyond the realm of possibility until they began to happen. John Wolford correctly predicted Israel's establishment as a nation. He foresaw that the Iron Curtain would fall. He warned us that oil would make the Middle East the center of world conflict, all of which was true and came true. However, Armageddon is still yet to happen. He published another book. They reissued the book in the 1990s called Armageddon, Oil, and Terror. You may be saying, oh, very interesting, Pastor Bart, but what does that have to do with anything we're talking about? 
there became this overwhelming, in my day, 70s, 80s, and 90s, emphasis on the second coming of Christ to the point, and I'm just giving you my story a little bit, to the point that I was like, I want nothing to do with this. The church was so divided over the rapture and the millennium and the tribulation. And I, I, I mean, if I heard another talk on the ashes of the red heifer, I was going to be like, uh, my head was going to explode. So some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. You had to have the ashes of the red heifer to restart um, the sacrificial system in the temple um, because of the books of Leviticus. And so they were talking about how they were raising these red heifers in this certain area. And I'm like, what in the world has the church come to where our enamorment is with a cow somewhere, somewhere when people are, people are going to hell because they don't know Jesus and our hearts are about a cow. I'm giving you my harsh, skeptical view of the whole thing. So I just took a step back and said, I, and now fullness has started at this point in the 90s. And I'm just like, I'm just not going to get into it. If people ask me what my view is, I'll talk about it and we'll get there. And at some point, again, I'm, I'm sharing my heart with you. I hope you're fine so far. But at some point, during the Advent season in the 90s, late 90s, God retouched my heart about the issue of the second Advent of Jesus. Um, we're going to celebrate the season of Advent. We've always done it as a church, the four Sundays that precede Christmas, but I can't remember the exact year. And the next year, I actually preached through the book of Revelation. I think it was like 1998, so it was probably 97, where at Advent, God just, in the, in the Advent reading, you might not think God moves in the Advent reading and light the candles and stuff, but it just, the whole second coming of Christ just really, and not the nitty-gritty kind of like, oh, we have to figure this all out. But if I believe Jesus came and Jesus is coming and I'm living between the times of his first and second coming, then in some way, both comings, first and second, those advents, have to influence who I am now. It influences what God has done for me, but it influences what God is doing to me in the future. And though I may not have it all figured out, and we won't, by the way, we will not have it all figured out when we finish this study on Thessalonians. Um, it's just not going to, a lot of people smarter than me and you have really studied these passages and come away not knowing. I mean, we're going to get to a passage in a, like three weeks where he's going to talk about uh, the man of lawlessness. And he's going to talk about how the man of lawlessness is being restrained. And he's going to talk to the church and he's going to say, you know, the man of lawlessness is being restrained and you know by who? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. I don't know who. The church in Thessalonica somehow knew, but Paul never says who's restraining the man of lawlessness. 
in the book. He never says who's holding him back. And when he's gone, then the men of lawlessness will be released. I'm like, well, it'd be really helpful if you told us who that was. I, I don't think he does. I don't think it's clear. We can speculate, and we will in a couple of weeks. Come back, and we'll have a great time speculating together. Here's my point. If, if the second coming influences my life of faith now, if I'm going to walk in the light and the love of Jesus Christ now, if I'm going to faith forward in these uncertain times, how does the second coming actually, Christ's return, actually impact my faith now? That's the question. Not all the ways we figure it out. Here's my thing, my bottom line. No matter what the days ahead hold, get ready to go through trouble. In this world, you will have troubles. If we're not here during the tribulation, praise God. But if we are here, then we're ready. We're ready that our faith will not be shaken. We're ready that we can keep our eyes fixed on the prize. We're ready that God can lead us and guide us and direct us. Amen? And then we're ready for Jesus' return. But it should impact our faith now in some way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to give you three points on how this impacts your faith. For, just read it. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Last week, uh, Scott preached on the rapture. By the way, if you didn't hear that sermon, you really need to get a copy. You can go to the podcast, go to Fullness.life, listen to it. It was an outstanding um, word on Christ's return. And he gave us three, these three points. What you believe about death is intensely practical. It, it matters. I mean, think about it. If you believe, whatever you believe about death, it matters to how you live your life now. What we believe about death is actually based on Christ's return. If death is an end, if Christ is not returning, uh, I mean, you've got to figure out, is Christ returning? If so, it impacts how you view death now. We're not of those who are without hope. And our ultimate source of encouragement as the church, as the people of God, rests on Christ's return. 
So with all of that background, which may have been a lot, that was a long intro, I know. Hopefully uh, you haven't fallen totally asleep yet. Um, let's look at three things that Christ's return, coming out of Scott's sermon about our encouragement rests on his return, how it should impact us. So first is this. Christ's return should cause us to remain diligent. This is, to me, the most obvious point. We need to be a diligent people. Here's what Paul says. Now, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Why does he not need to write to them? Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. And he's told them, I don't know. But they are evidently enamored with when is Jesus going to come back. I mean, so much so, they're, they're quitting their jobs, sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. They've quit living life waiting for Jesus to come back. And he says to them, don't get enamored with the dates and times. You know, I wish in the 70s and 80s and 90s somebody had read this passage at one of these conferences, and just said, hey, let's not get all tied up in this. In the early 2000s, I tried to find the picture. I couldn't find it. But in the early 2000s, when we went on a trip to Ghana, a medical trip, there was a poster, and I can't even remember the exact date, but there was a big, not poster, it was a billboard, huge billboard, sitting outside the the entry to the airport, and it had a date on it. That's all it was. It was just a date. And I can't remember the date. It was like November 21st, 2006 or something. And we were all like, it was like four or five years before that, three, four, five years, and we're like, what is that date? What, what, what is, that is really weird. They must be having a big party here, and they want everybody to get ready for the date of the, the, the party. And we saw it like two years, three years in a row, this big billboard. So finally we looked it up. And it was a movement out of the United States of a guy who had predicted this is the date of the return of Christ. And they had put up bill, and it became a real deal, even in the United States, if you remember in the early 2000s, for some of you may recall, about this particular date. Well, we passed that date. Um, and then he reevaluated. Oh, oh, sorry. I meant, this is always the part. Oh, I, I, I meant a later date. Uh, and I'm not just making, I'm just saying our enamorment with dates is not our call. Instead, our call is this, live diligently. He goes on and he compares the return of Christ to, he gives two analogies. The thief in the night I mean, because the thief in the night doesn't announce his coming, right? He doesn't say, hey, I'm in the house. I'm taking all your stuff. Uh, he waits till you're asleep, and then he comes suddenly and takes your stuff, at least in the old days. Now he may announce it and just <laughs> move on through. Or he runs for political office. And then, I know, exactly. I just want to see if you're listening. Or as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Um, I, 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 uh, let me rephrase that. My wife and I have had the privilege of having five children. I've had none of them. I happen to be present for all five. 
I remember uh, our firstborn, she went for her regular checkup. You know, you start going weekly or something in the last month or so. She went for a weekly checkup. It's Friday morning. It's like 9 o'clock. The doctor said, uh, yeah, probably, I'm, I'm guessing another seven days. Now, the doctor, who we loved, an OBGYN, not anybody we know, by the way. This was before we even moved here. The doctor, whom we loved, said to her, probably seven days from now, you're going to have this baby. And this doctor had been to med school. This doctor has spent her entire life giving birth to babies. This doctor, this woman, had, had examined hundreds, maybe thousands of women, telling them when they were going to have a baby. Couldn't have been more qualified. Nine o'clock in the morning, probably seven days. Mid-afternoon, baby. <laughs> now, my wife, we learned, gives birth to babies fairly quickly. But the point is this. The expert could not predict when she was going to go into labor and have this baby. Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica, remain diligent. No one knows the day or the hour, but you stay ready. And by the way, he's going to talk about judgment that's coming up, and we're going to do a sermon just as this couldn't be more fun. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about judgment. And goes on and says, but you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. He's basically saying this day shouldn't surprise you. It should not come on you. It's going to happen, and it's going to be a surprise in that sense, but you're diligent all the time. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Uh, he, again, he is saying to us, remain diligent. Never let your guard down. Don't fall asleep spiritually, so to speak, so that it surprises you. Because bad things happen at night. That's what he's saying. Back then, particularly, I'm not sure it's totally changed. We've just figured out a way to light the night and make it seem like it's not as bad, but it's still, it's still bad. Spiritually, we're to stay diligent, stay alert. Are you with me? Okay, second point. <laughs> Here's one that uh, really makes a difference. Christ's return should cause us to strive for holiness. Uh, wh why does it make a dis difference? He says this, but since we belong to the day, making this light and darkness uh, analogy, we don't belong to the people of the night. We're not of those who get drunk and fall asleep and the thief comes in and things pass us by. Instead, we belong to the day. We belong to the light. Let us be what? Self-controlled. It's not exactly holiness in the sense of holiness, you know, like the whole, but it is holiness in the sense of the darkness doesn't control me. I am, I have the ability to be self-controlled. Now, I've spoken on this a lot. You have the ability to be self-controlled because God has put his self in you. And it's because we have the Spirit of God working his way out from us that we have the ability to, to be self-controlled. My, um, my issue with the church at some points is that we act like we can't be self-controlled. 
we at times act as if, you know, I'm just out of control. You know, sin just, I, I, I just keep stumbling and falling into sin. I, I, you're not going to reach perfection, but there should be an upward trend in your life toward better self-control, freedom from sin, holiness, putting on, because you're self-controlled, because you have the ability to put on what? Faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Can you see Paul's early, you know, we sometimes think, oh, that's the only time Paul ever talked about um, the armor of God. But you can even see in his early writings here in Thessalonians how he's kind of starting to articulate faith, hope, and love. And he's starting to articulate at the same time the armor of God analogy. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It should push us toward holiness. Third point. And by the way, that's a big point. It's a big point that you can live a self-controlled life. Um, please don't let the enemy lie to you and tell you you can't be self-controlled. Because you can. Because God's power is at work within you. Third point. Christ's return should cause us to stay connected. Again, I, 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 I don't want to be cynical. I, I want to be loving and gracious in all that I do. But some people have taken the return of Christ and done anything but give us a cause to connect with one another. The enemy has used it to divide us. Uh, and that's not the point. Paul even makes it. He, he says um, this. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Together with him. Um, he, here's the point. Christ's return, we're with God. I mean, we're with him, but it, it causes us to be connected to one another. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? Because of the return of Jesus, the imminent return of Christ, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And some people argue, were they really doing this? Or is he kind of backdoor telling them, hey, I know you're doing this. Kind of. Because they've come so enamored with the dates and the times and their jobs and whether they work or not. And now it's causing divisions within the church because some people aren't working. And now some people are having to take care of the people who are not working. Somebody's having to feed the non-workers who are waiting for the return of Christ. So as a result, it's starting to actually cause divisions within the church. So he's saying to them, look, build each other up. Don't worry about the times. And he's going to tell the others, by the way, later on, get to work. Don't be, don't be just doing nothing. Work and wait. Work and expect. Have this sense of expectation. Here, here's, my, here's my encouragement to us. I, I want us to uh, return to a healthy expectation of the return of Christ. Because the return of Christ and biblical prophecy properly placed will encourage our faith. Because if not, sometimes all we're left with in Christianity, if we're not connected to him and to each other with his healthy expectation, all we're left with then is rules and regulations. 
point as an illustration. Just this week, there was a major study uh, released by Lifeway, which is the arm of the Southern Baptist, and Ligonier Ministries, that's a Presbyterian, it was um, R.C. Sproul, um, was Ligonier Ministries. They did a joint study about what evangelicals believe. And it, it was a huge study, like three, 400,000 that they, they studied. Here's some of the conclusions. 94% of evangelicals agree that sex outside of traditional marriage is wrong. We would agree with that. That 91% of evangelicals believe that abortion is a sin. Here's the kicker. 43% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% of those who self-identify as evangelicals, and they did a pretty extensive questionnaire prior to this to see if they, I don't know what the questionnaire involved. I'm giving you the summary. But 43%, and a majority a majority of those interviewed believe that he is the first and greatest being created by God. By, by the way, that's Jehovah's Witness. That is not evangelical. Um, that Jesus is a created being, that he's not God incarnate. Why is this, why is this so critical? Here's why it's critical. If we don't teach if we don't know who Jesus is, all we're left with is moral rules. And we've done a pretty good job of communicating what are these moral rules, but if we're not careful, they fall into legalism. And the truth is this, that legalism will be rejected by the generation that it's taught to, and in fact, they will turn away from their faith because they'll react to the legalism. You may not, just another study. I'm putting studies together and coming up with own conclusions. This is not good doctoral work, but I'm giving it to you anyway because I think there is a bridge here. Study of 57,000 undergraduates at 159 top universities by the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. This is not a Christian organization, as you can probably see. But it is an extensive study. And buried in some of the stats is this. And they said it. Homeschool and parochial schooled undergraduates are as or more likely to identify as LGBT or non-binary as those from public or private school backgrounds. You may be saying, wait, what, am I, what are you saying? What I'm saying is the church over the last 30 years, has seen Christian private school or homeschooling as a wall to keep the world out, and as a result, has tripped into this moral teaching at times, rather than a teaching about who Jesus is. And as a result, when the students of homeschooled families or Christian private school. Hey. <coughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cough. I swallowed wrong. We both, we homeschooled, Christian private schooled, and public schooled. 
our family did. I'm not nailing any of those three alternatives of schooling. I believe God will direct you how to school your children. But what I'm saying is this. If we don't get back to the basics of the gospel, which is this. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to this earth, went to the cross, so that our sins, which were unpayable, could be paid for, could be taken care of, and the love of God is now released in our hearts. We've been restored into relationship with him, and we stay connected with him because of what he's done and that he's coming back. All the anti-abortion or anti-gay or anti-sleep-with-your-girlfriend-before-marriage will get us nowhere without the truth of the gospel. Now, some of you didn't react as strongly to that as I thought you would. Because I, I, I believe in a moral foundation, but I told you at the end of the summer, if I had it to redo, I would spend more time trying to instill into my kids who Jesus is and the love of God. Because ultimately, the rules will be rejected if all they are is connected to rules. We're not those. We are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you're doing. Now, if you're about to walk away and say, I heard Pastor Bart say, that moral rules do not matter, then you missed a big part of the sermon. I think being connected to Christ will drive us to holiness. It will, it will encourage us to live lives of daylight and not darkness. But if all we do is stress rules, we're going to miss the heart of the gospel and we're going to lose a generation. The, the second coming of Christ is this big a deal. It should, it should cause us to remain diligent and awake. It should help us, encourage us to live holier lives because we know he's coming. By the way, if you miss it, please, please don't miss it. In two weeks, I'm going to preach on judgment. And you'll see how the second coming helps us live holier lives because we know judgment is coming. And it should help us stay connected to God and to one another. Lord, I pray this morning that we will be recipients of this incredible good news. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, came to this earth and died for us. And now, Lord, we follow you as Lord, as the one who leads our lives because you've forgiven our sins. You've restored us into relationship with God the Father. The God the Son infills us, empowers us, and dwells us. And we confess this morning that we are the people who declare that God will return to this earth. That Jesus, the same Jesus we saw taken up, or the apostles saw taken up, will return to earth in like manner. Lord, we believe. And that belief, that 
faith is the light that guides our path in the days ahead. That we have this faithful light of the return of Christ, which will help us and encourage us and, 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 and to remain diligent and holy and connected to one another. Lord, we say thank you. We glory in you. In Jesus' name, amen.